Okay, so Jared, one time about seven or eight years ago, you and I were on a winter camping trip. And on this trip, you decided to only bring dry food, meaning food that didn't have to be cooked or anything like that. Hmm. And one of our companions on this trip criticized you, saying that you should have brought food that you can cook because you'll get too cold otherwise. I remember that. And uh, I wonder if you think that that's a true, a true criticism, meaning that like you'll get too cold if you don't cook your food, if you only dry cold food for the entire five days that you were there. And I feel like this is something that we can estimate using a method known as Fermi estimation. Yeah, that sounds good. I, I, I suspect that she may be incorrect. And I would like to confirm my suspicions. <laughs> Great. <laughs> One of the best uses of estimation is to prove people wrong. <laughs> no, I'd prove myself right. That's mm, you can, yeah. then you can word it positively. <laughs> <laughs> okay, where should we start? Uh, I guess I would start by trying to figure out the relevant measurements of the food that you have and also the measurements of temperature because that's sort of that's sort of what we want to calculate in the end is whether or not you're going to freeze to death hmm. yeah if i remember correctly i brought five thousand calories of food per day but i don't know if we need to use that number specifically what's a calorie that's uh, actually a kilocalorie <laughs> what's a kilocalorie <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a bad system. You're going to use that system for sure. Um, uh, wow, I don't remember the, the translation from calories to joules. I think it was, I think it's like... 4.184. I thought it was four. It is four. <laughs> yeah. But that's a that's a regular calorie, not a, not a calorie that's actually a kilocalorie. That's right. Yeah, yeah, great. Okay, cool. Uh, okay, so four. Wait, but you didn't answer what's a calorie yet. Oh, sorry. It's a unit of uh, energy. How, how is it defined? Was it defined? Poof. Well, I don't know. I, if I had to guess, it's like the amount of energy it takes to heat up, I don't know, like an ounce of water, one degree Fahrenheit or something. You're, you're close, but you, you switched into an insane measurement system halfway through. What? Oh, I thought, isn't the joule based on the the metric system? And so is the calorie. Oh, shit. Okay. What's the difference? Between a joule and a calorie? Yeah. One fourth. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I understand <laughs> that. But which one is, is used to raise one gram of water one degree Celsius? That's a calorie. You That's a it. calorie. Yeah. Oh, no. Wow. What yeah, is a so joule? It's, I just told you. <laughs> okay, never mind. Never mind. I'll move on. <laughs> um, okay, so a calorie is the amount of energy needed to raise the temperature of one gram of water, which is also a milliliter of water by one degree Celsius. Great. Cool. And a joule is not relevant to this problem, so we might just cut this out, but it's the, the amount of energy created by a one newton force as it moves an object over the course of one meter. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. A one gram object. 
Yes. A one, a one kilogram? I think it's one gram. Wow. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Actually, it, it shouldn't matter. Should it matter? It should matter. Energy? The mass definitely matters for energy. Ah, but isn't isn't mass included in Newton? Isn't a Newton like a kilogram meter per second squared or something? Yeah. Yeah, it is. So it already has kilogram in it then. So it's one Newton of force applied over a meter. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see that. Well, I'm going to have to think about that more, but let's go back to calories. All right, we're almost done with the, <laughs> with the first sentence of the podcast. We're, we're still teasing them. <laughs> it's a teaser. All right, so the calorie is energy contained in food, and also we've, we've given the definition of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that you noted is that the term calorie that you see on a food label, for example, is actually a kilocalorie or a thousand calories. And in some places in the world, food labels will have written kcal on them to denote this. But in other places, you'll see written calorie with a capital C, which is also supposed to denote that it's actually a thousand literal calories. Mm, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm remembering some of this stuff now. So I plan for 5,000 calories a day, but they were actually kilocalories. So... It's five million calories a day. Five megacalories, if you will. Megacal. Oh my god, that sounds amazing. <laughs> oh man. Uh, so I could have raised the temperature of five million grams of water one degree Celsius. That's a lot of grams. Five thousand kilograms. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I want to do something else with that energy. Okay. So then we have an easy conversion between like the energy in food and the energy that you get from the cooling of food and the energy that I need to heat up my body. And I weigh 75 kilograms-ish. Uh, wow, it takes a lot to raise my body temperature at one degree Celsius. 75,000 calories. Or 75 regular calories, which is like actually seems like very few, assuming that I'm made entirely of water. And assuming that your body is capable of turning calories directly into heat energy. Oh, do you know about the efficiency of that? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess in like Fermi estimation style, do we think it's like a 50% efficiency or a 25% efficiency? or One sort of necessary requirement for Fermi estimation is that you know the units and physical constants that are going into what you're trying to calculate. Hmm. And in this case, no, I don't I don't know anything about that. Hmm. Although, I think this problem can be simplified without going into any human physiology or metabolism at all. Oh, great. Yeah. And rather just say, of the food that you're eating, does it matter whether it's around zero degrees Celsius which it would be if it was like almost frozen, mm-hmm. or if it was hot, like cooked food, which might be around 50 degrees Celsius, or maybe like 70 degrees Celsius if it was soup or something. Mm. So you can simply calculate the difference of cooking your food versus not cooking your food mm. and figuring out the amount of calories in that hot versus cold food, how much that will affect your body temperature. Because that's the question is whether or not you're going to freeze to death. Mm. So like 
does drinking a liter of soup have a greater like have a great have a meaningful effect compared to eating a liter of ice? <laughs> ice soup. <laughs> or you know maybe like cold water or something. Yeah. So I think solving that would be enough to answer this question. Okay. So it's a liter. That's nice. A thousand milliliters. Yeah. And let's just say it's like the difference of 50 degrees Celsius versus zero degrees Celsius. Yeah. That seems convenient and nice, which is like the whole point. It's like use convenient numbers. Okay. So 50 degrees Celsius, one liter. And so the cooling from 50 degrees... All right. Oh, we're just doing the difference between the two foods. I see. Yeah. I see. So that's not too bad. Okay, great. So then it's a uh, thousand grams and fifty degrees. So it's five thousand or fifty thousand. Fifty thousand. Why is it a thousand grams? A thousand uh, milliliters. Yeah, one one liter of water. Yeah, if we assume that it's water, then it's that's a thousand grams. I agree. I just wanted to make it clear. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was doing the thing where I don't show my work. I'm really good at that in math class. Yeah. And so then it's 50,000 calories with a, with a little c. That's right. And so it's 50 kilocalories. That's also right. Wow. Nice. So in order to make up the difference between the hot soup and the ice block soup, I would have to eat an additional 50 calories of soup. Or anything. I think you've got it. Nice. Yeah. So it seems to me, based on this, that only eating cold food versus hot food on a winter camping trip would not cause you to freeze to death. Yeah, yeah. Because you can make up a difference by eating four cashews or whatever. <laughs> One macadamia nut. <laughs> <laughs> per meal keeps me warm all winter. All right, we did it. Teaser estimation exercise complete. Nice. Now intro time. Um, Jared, what is the name of this internet audio show that we're recording? This is the in- the recorded internet <laughs> broadcast. I couldn't even say it. The internet recorded broadcast. <laughs> Jared, <laughs> Let's try again. what is the name of this audio show that we're recording? The recorded internet broadcast. And I'm Tim, and our co-host is Jared, and you can find more information on our website at recordedinternetbroadcast.com. So part of what we just did in trying to assess the question of whether or not I'll die on a winter camping trip if I don't bring a a stove (laughs) was to try to make an estimate about like putting that into numbers and trying to make an actual comparison between those two things rather than just having like the qualitative like, oh, is it going to be death or soup? And I think that's one of those situations too where I really like making estimates because I heard it and I'm like, you have more experience with this than me. I'm pretty sure you're wrong, but it's like hard for me not to take you somewhat seriously. And now I like, I would love to have a way to check what you've just said. And so I remember that being really helpful at the time. And I, I think just generally that's like a thing that you and I do a fair amount. I feel like the most common example is I'll read something and then you're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Actually, here's three numbers. And like, well, the thing you just said is way wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I see that. I see how you did that.
but it's been really helpful for us to like work through different problems that way. Yeah, I agree. And like you just said, the example of the winter camping one is it gives you the ability to find out how big of a deal something is, like whether it's something you're experiencing or something you're designing or some information that you heard using Fermi estimation is a quick way to quickly realize how much it matters or something like that. Yeah. Should we define Fermi estimation? Yeah, I was just going to ask you, um, what's Fermi and what's estimation? Mm. A Fermi is this like plush toy that was really very popular for a little while. Um, no, 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 no. That's a Furby. Yeah, the Furby estimation is, is a powerful tool. <laughs> I've never tried Furby estimation before. <laughs> How many Furbies could fit in that? <laughs> that's all it is. Um, Fermi was a physicist. And he was known for his ability to make good approximate calculations with little or no actual data. Admittedly, we did use a lot of background information to help us with our winter camping calculation, but that's okay. Fermi problems typically involve making justified guesses about quantities and their variance or lower and upper bounds. In some cases, order of magnitude estimates can also be derived using dimensional analysis. Well, I don't know what that means. It's it's another word for... This sort of thing you're doing, like it's the, like the education term for converting units to one another. Mm, I see. You're looking like a sixth grade textbook. That's what it would say. It says dimensional analysis in a sixth grade. It might also say unit analysis. Oh, I see. But it's the same idea. Oh, got it. That kind of dimension. I get you. Okay. So that's a Fermi. He was a guy, physicist, physicist guy, and he was well known for this. And I really love the Wikipedia article on this. The, the historical background is is all of uh, two sentences, and it's that an example is Enrico Fermi's estimate of the strength of the atomic bomb that detonated at the Trinity test based on the distance traveled by pieces of paper he dropped from his hand during the blast. Fermi's estimate of 10 kilotons of TNT was well within an order of magnitude of the now accepted value of 21 kilotons. And it's just like, I don't, I can't even really imagine thinking about that as you're, as that happens. Just like, oh, there goes my paper. And, uh, now I know a lot of stuff (laughs) about that huge blast. That's pretty incredible. (laughs) One thing that you mentioned during that is the concept of an order of magnitude. What's the order of magnitude? Wow. I don't know if I have a good way to explain that. Um, I don't know how to say it in words, but an example is sort of like one or ten. Those are two different orders of magnitude. I guess it's it's sort of like a because we use a base ten number system. It's it's ten to the something. I don't know if that idea of order of magnitude changes in other base systems, but uh, in our base system, because you add an additional digit every time you go up by a power of ten, an order of magnitude is is every power of ten. And so, you know, if you've ever seen scientific notation, which is when you take a number and you make it so that there's, you know, the first digit in the number and then a decimal point and then additional digits, and then you multiply it by 10 to the sum power that makes it its original number. So 30,000 would be 3 times 10 to the fourth. And so then for Fermi estimation, at least in the way that I've commonly practiced it, you just get rid of the three and you're like, yeah, it's like 10 to the fourth. Yeah. And so the example you just described of 
for me observing the detonation of the first atomic bomb. And he estimated the blast to be 10 kilotons of TNT, whereas the now accepted value is 21 kilotons of TNT. Those are both on the same order of magnitude, 10 being 1 times 10 to the 2, and 21 being 2.1 times 10 to the 10 2. 10 is, um, is 1 times 10 to the, to the 1. <laughs> 21 is <laughs> 2.1 times, times 10 to the, the hmm. first <laughs> That sounds pretty convincing to me. I'll, I'll cool. buy that. Cool, thanks. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, and I really like the process of Fermi estimation, too, because it's just like the goal is not to be precisely right. So, like, in other circumstances, if I was off by a factor of two in a guess or, like, a calculation that I had done, people might say, oh, you were super wrong. But for a quick, like, back of the hand... Uh, or like, what is it? Back of the napkin calculation. Back of the envelope. Back of the envelope? I don't use envelope. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I guess I don't use napkins. Anyway, um, <laughs> I have a hand. It's going to be a back of the hand calculation. Uh, yeah, it's just nice to get like a general sense for what your what your final answer is going to look like. Fermi estimation is this sort of subset of estimation generally. And one thing I've really enjoyed doing as you estimate is you can sort of keep track of like, oh, what was my guess for that thing? And if you keep track of all of your guesses for your numbers, but you still develop some kind of equation that you're going to use to arrive at your answer, once you learn more information, you can just plug in the new numbers. You can just be like, oh, my guess was bad. Let me just like go back and correct it. And then you can slowly get to the right answer as you learn more information, which is kind of nice too. So one thing that's required for performing this sort of estimation is some knowledge of unit conversions, like how many centimeters are in a meter, for example, and also some knowledge of physical constants in the world. For example, the one we just went through requires you to know what a calorie is Hmm. and what a liter is and that sort of thing. Do you have any favorite physical constants? I think the the sort of uh, simplicity of the liter is quite nice. Or I guess it's not the liter, I guess it's the the milliliter of water as being one gram and also one cubic centimeter. I use that one a lot. Like, yeah, pretty frequently. And I also therefore assume that a lot of materials are actually just water, which isn't that reliable some of the time, but for anything related to biology, it actually feels like it's okay. Yeah, and also related to like any fluid that you would drink, for example, Mm. is generally going to be mostly water. Yeah. Unless you're drinking oil. (laughs) That'd be rough. Uh, Yeah, I think that's my favorite. I guess the speed of light seems elegant in some ways, but I don't, I don't, I don't have that attached to it. What is your favorite physical constant? I didn't have an answer to that one. You didn't? <laughs> no. In the past? <laughs> yeah. What about what about the future? Maybe. Mm, cool. Yeah, I was thinking about this because a teacher of mine in college was really obsessed with estimation, and he thought it was like one of the most valuable things that engineers could practice. And... Uh, he just likes to do estimation problems with his his son. And so they were driving down the road, and they went by the Blue Hills. 
And he was like, how much, what's the volume of that hill? And they tried to figure it out. And when I was reflecting on that a little bit, it's like, oh yeah, one of you has to know the equation for the volume of a cone. At, at like the most rudimentary guess, you're going to have to have a sense for that or be able to derive it. And for a more complicated guess, you could have even more complex techniques. But I think it's not just the knowledge of physical constants. It's also this like, how well can you manipulate numbers? What kind of mathematical tools do you have available to you? Yeah, definitely. If you weren't familiar with cones, <laughs> with the existence of cones, then you might have to estimate it as like a like a series of cylinders or something, like a series of concentric cylinders mm. of greater and greater height. Wow. That's just like such a nice example of how calculus just becomes <laughs> geometry. That's true. Yeah. Um, this isn't necessarily a physical constant, but when doing this sort of thing, it's useful to know some constants about the world you live in. Mm. For example, like the radius of the earth or the distance to the sun, that sort of thing. If that's involved in what you're calculating, obviously. Yeah. When I was considering some example problems that I could come up with, one of them was how many grains of sand are on all the beaches of the planet. And I have no idea what the order of magnitude would be, but I think I would just calculate, like I would make a guess about the volume of a grain of sand and then use the, I think I actually only know the circumference of the earth. I don't think I know it's radius, but, uh, and I, and I think it's 21,000 miles, but that could be wrong. I think, oh, so I'm pretty sure that the radius of the earth is 6,400 meters. Wow. Kilometers? Kilometers. 6,400. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> this is the Earth. It's a pretty small Earth. <laughs> Can you have been a flat Earther the whole time? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, okay. I believe that. Two pi times that. Pi is a good one. Knowing about circles, so like basic geometry is quite quite helpful. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I thought that the, the radius of the Earth is 6,400 kilometers. And you think the circumference of the Earth is about 21,000 miles? Yeah, it might be 22, but it's something in that range. Um, do those numbers add up? Oh, man, I don't, uh, I don't want to divide by pi. Okay. Uh, you don't have to. You can multiply by it instead. <laughs> oh, great. And in the spirit of estimation, you can assume that it's three. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, then I'll do the 21,000 then. So then that's a 7,000-mile diameter or a 3,500-mile... Wow, I hated that. 3,500-mile uh, <laughs> radius. It uh, was 1.6 kilometers in a mile. Oh, God. What if it's just 1.5? It is. Great. <laughs> no, it's not. But in the spirit of estimation, it can be. So then it's like 5,000 5, kilometers. So it's probably it's probably the 22,000 mile. Maybe it's yeah. even 24,000 miles. And one thing to note here, which is a good thing to keep track of when doing this sort of estimation, is whether you're consistently underestimating or overestimating certain parameters. 
Mm. Like, for example, we underestimated pi, which is 3.14, as 3. Mm. We underestimated the mile-to-kilometer conversion, which is 1.6, as 1.5. So if your answer seems to be a little under what it's supposed to be, you can sort of think back to these these estimates that you made and then propagate them back through. Yeah, except those ones got divided by each other. Oh, did they? Yeah, so that actually is okay. But yeah, that's a good point. I mean... Certainly, if we had consistently done that the wrong way, it could have been not so great. But it seems like my answer is, well, I guess we don't know which one of our answers is wrong, but I have a lot of unease about my answers, so <laughs> I think we can take yours. But yeah, to calculate the number of grains of sand, I think I was just going to do, like, pick a grain size, figure out the volume of the earth, and then uh, figure out how many grains of sand that was and divide by, like, 100. Be like, cool. That's probably the grains. You don't want to do the volume of the earth, though. Why? You want to do the volume of the beaches. That's why I was going to divide by 100. Because 1% of the earth is beaches? That's that's my that's what I'm going for. I think that's way too high of an estimation. You think it's one... one what do you think it is? A uh, hundredth of a percent. Okay, that sounds good. But that was going to be my strategy. Was to was not to try to figure out what the volume of the beaches was. It was just to calculate the volume of the Earth, fill but it with sand. Beaches are also only on the surface of the Earth. Yeah, that's a good point. Beaches are only on the top of the Earth's crust, which is like also less than a hundredth of the volume of the Earth. Mm. So another factor of a hundred. Yeah. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't try to do it out. <laughs> no, I know, I'm just... Yeah. I'm, I didn't either. Yeah. I just think there's a lot less beaches than you think there are. <laughs> <laughs> I just think they're really deep. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> they go yeah. straight to the center of the earth. <laughs> like, there's probably way more sand in the ocean floor than there is on a beach, like in the earth. Yeah. I mean, I just heard the, like, there's some literary reference or maybe it was actually some scientist that like has some quote about trying to calculate the number of grains of sand and then i think it's kind of funny that you can like do it sure he like presents it as this like impossible task like oh my god like it'd be like trying to count these yeah i mean it would be impossible to count count the grain of sands yeah Yeah. but not impossible to guess (laughs) to estimate them yeah uh, so, Tim, I think we should try another Fermi problem, as it were, or another okay, example I'm down. of Fermi estimation. And you're down. That's good. I'm up for, I'm okay. up for it. And now you're up. Oh, man. He's yeah. everywhere. <laughs> How many meters up are you in comparison to your meters down? Equal. I'm equally <laughs> up and equally down for doing this. Oh, man. That's tough. Not the chuckle. Um, okay. If the mass of one teaspoon of water could be converted entirely into energy in the form of heat, what volume of water initially at room temperature could it bring to a boil? And the answer should be in liters. Wow. Because the imperial system is terrible and gallons are bad. (laughs) Well put. Um, Thanks. (laughs) So... Unlike the sort of heating and cooling we were describing before in terms of chemical energy, like the amount of energy stored in a cashew, for example, um, in this case, we're using what's called the mass energy equivalent that was first described by Albert Einstein. 
meaning if you were able to extract the atomic energy from the molecules in a teaspoon of water and converted that to heat, how much water could you then increase from room temperature to a boil? And one thing that I happen to know is that in all like scientific protocols, room temperature is defined as 20 degrees Celsius. That's convenient. And boiling water in Celsius, of course, is 100 degrees. It's not 217. 212. No, it's not that. <laughs> 463 and a half. <laughs> is, that, is that in Kelvin's? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is, is Kelvin's the imperial one? Kelvin's is imperial, yeah. Or no, sorry, uh, Fahrenheit's imperial. Kelvin's No, is... but like, the absolute temperatures is one each for Celsius and Fahrenheit. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, I've only ever heard Kelvin. Kelvin is for Celsius. One degree okay. Kelvin is one degree Celsius. Well, there's another one for Fahrenheit, which I don't know if you were dealing with like absolute zero scale temperatures, why you would be worrying in Fahrenheit. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's called the, rank, the Rankine scale. R-A-N-K-I-N-E. That's not good. Yeah, so forget about that one. Um, Great. Okay. All right, back, cool. to the, back to the problem. Yeah. So 80 degrees of Celsius difference. Per liter, yeah. And we want to know how many liters. Yeah. Okay, so let's figure out the mass of a teaspoon of water. The teaspoon being a terrible, <laughs> terrible unit. A teaspoon... <laughs> And I, I only know this from baking, and I still remember being like, what did you just say? So a teaspoon is one-third of a tablespoon, which is one-half of an ounce, which is one-eighth of a cup, or sixteenth of a pint. And then you get to quartz, which is like a unit that sort of makes sense in its name, and that it's a quarter of a gallon. Mm-hmm. Much like the pint should be the octet or something, I don't know, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, but I'm not getting us any closer to milliliters at this point. So let's go back and, uh, okay. So, so one teaspoon is one sixth of an ounce. Oh no. Yeah. At some point you just sort of have to know, you have to know one of the conversions. Yeah. Like whether it's that, you know, that there's like 3.7 liters in a gallon, for example, like that would be enough if you backtrack. Um, it depends like what, what sort of thing you've seen most recently. Like I happen to know that there's 355 milliliters in a 12 ounce can because mm. I see cans often. Yeah. I think I've seen um, there's 33 milliliters in a tablespoon. That's wrong. Great. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> is that a teaspoon? No. No. Is that, what is it? An ounce? Oh, shit. it's close to an ounce, but it's over an ounce, I believe. Oh no. Okay. I don't think 33 is, is anything. <laughs> Um, so the constants for a uh, teaspoon and also for fluid ounce are both pretty round numbers. Um, hmm. an ounce is right around the 30 milliliters and a teaspoon is right around five milliliters. So if you remember either of those, you can easily convert. Wow. And those are within like, uh, less than 1% error, I believe. Wow. Yeah. I can look it up. Uh, one fluid ounce is 29.57 milliliters. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Great. And one teaspoon is four point nine three milliliters. Amazing. So, knowing like just memorizing those like thirty milliliters in an ounce is a pretty good one. Yeah. Or if you can't memorize them, 
if you can remember an object that you see frequently, like a gallon of milk, will always have the liters and gallons printed on it. So, like, yeah, if you want to do this sort of thing, you can remember one of those one of those conversions to start you on your way. And it's worth noting that we could have just guessed wildly, just been like it's ten, and then just like looked it up at the end. Right. Our answer would have just been off by the fact that we were off for that estimation. Exactly. So that's, yeah. That's fine. So we're working with one teaspoon of water, which is, as we just discovered, about five milliliters. And because the density of water is defined as one gram per milliliter, we have five grams of water. Great. And the equation we're going to use to get to energy is, I was going to say of course, but I guess it's not necessarily common knowledge, but E equals mc squared. I think the existence of the equation is very common knowledge, but Great. the frequency of its use in everyday life is very uncommon. Because hmm. usually atoms are staying together. <laughs> yeah, and so now we have the M, the mass. Can you describe the letters in the equation? Oh, sure. Uh, e is energy, and then that equals... Can you, can you describe the units as well? For each of the letters. Oh, sure, sure. Good point. Yeah, okay. So E is energy in joules, uh, which equals mass in kilograms times the speed of light, which is in meters per second. And then you take that unit and you square it. The very last one? So it's a speed squared. Yeah, just the, just the C. Just a very unusual equation. I know that's not exactly what we're talking about today, but like, wow, what? Like, take your mass, multiply it by a speed. Oh, and then multiply it by that speed again. <laughs> and then now it's energy. What is that? Okay, so our mass is 0. 0.005 kilograms. That's right, F five grams. Five grams, yeah. yeah. Oh, and it's, I'm sorry, it's not just the speed of light. It's the speed of light in a vacuum. What's the difference? Uh, the speed of light as it travels through different mediums will travel at different speeds. And so light going through a fiber optic cable, which is like one of the faster things around the Earth that light travels through other than vacuums, is something like two-thirds of the speed of light, I think. Maybe it's a little bit more than that. Um and I don't remember what it is for traveling through air or for water, but it is different for all those different materials. And there's some other factors, but you can sort of imagine that like it doesn't travel through the ground very well. I noticed that before. <laughs> you did. Nice. <laughs> How did you find yourself noticing that? Uh, it was in a dark cave. And there was no light in there because the light hadn't traveled through the ground into the cave. Hmm, yeah. I'm a pretty good observational scientist. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, so we've got the equation E equals mc squared. And when we calculate this, we'll end up with the amount of joules that would be released by a certain mass. Mm. Um, which one thing I guess we didn't say is that this is the energy released when that mass, the. Um, and I don't know how this would work for water. But the the atoms that make up the molecule in the substance explode, but it's not it's not a chemical explosion. It's the atoms have their subatomic particles torn apart, which releases energy 
due to the forces that were holding the subatomic particles together. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I'm, I'm I only want to clarify just in case what you mean is like the electrons and the neutrons and the positrons or the uh, protons get like pulled away from each other. And it's actually more like they like just become energy immediately. If you just pull them away, you would get a lot of energy out of that, or you'd have to expend a lot of energy. I don't actually know for water, but um, but yeah, like fission and fusion and stuff rely on this. Like, there's a, a very very small amount that gets created by some unit of mass becoming just energy, um, and in none of those calculate like like any like nuclear bomb or a nuclear reactor like. Nothing anywhere close to what we're about to describe happens. Like, there's nowhere near this amount of energy coming out of any of those atoms, even though they're enormous, because they don't, most of it doesn't become energy. Yeah. For example, you probably heard of enriched uranium before. Like, when anyone is trying to make certain types of, of weapons or nuclear reactors, a common part of that process is enriching uranium. And what this means is to enrich the uranium atoms into a type of uranium atoms that contain more neutrons. And I believe that the number, the difference in the number is between uh, 235 and 237. I think so too, yeah. But that might be the number of protons plus neutrons. Either way, mm. it's two more. <laughs> um, and then when there's a, a, a nuclear reaction, that number 237 gets... It depends on the reaction, but in some cases degraded back to 235, or in some cases the uranium releases a proton and turns into thorium. I think there's a couple too, where, or some reactions where it becomes plutonium and something else. It like, it's like a pretty big split. Yeah, but like you were just saying, these still have like a very similar number of protons and neutrons in the atom. Like it's all around 230 or 250 or so. So as you were just saying, we're not completely annihilating the mass and turning it into energy as we are trying to do in this equation. <laughs> so does anyone know the speed of light in a vacuum? Call in now with your answers. <laughs> Everyone knows that. I don't know if I remember it. Three times ten to the eighth? Yeah. Uh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Sick. <laughs> and what's what are the, what's the units of that speed? <laughs> Meters per second. Meters per second. Okay. So, uh, we have our mass, five grams or point zero zero five kilograms, and we have the speed of light. But in the equation, it's c squared at the end, so we have to square the speed of light. So three point zero times ten to the eight becomes nine point zero times ten to the sixteen when you square it. Yeah. And given that we're trying to stay within orders of magnitude, I think it makes sense to upgrade <laughs> that from nine point zero times ten to the sixteen to one point zero times ten to the seventeen. Agreed. Yeah. Alright, so we've we've almost done it. Okay, so now the other way to say our number of kilograms is 5 times 10 to the negative 3, which is then times 10 to the 17 and multiplying it by the c squared. And so negative um, 3 plus 17 is 14. And now we have 5 times 10 to the 14 joules. 
Woo. Wow. We used the equation e equals mc squared successfully, we think. <laughs> in a real-life situation. <laughs> in an unreal situation. <laughs> it found that... Tim, activate the teaspoons. <laughs> a teaspoon of water <laughs> contains... What did we end up at? 5 times 10 to the 14? Yeah. Yeah. Joules. 5 times 10 to the 14 joules. Now we want to know, to, to finish the second part of this problem, which is what volume of water in liters can be raised from room temperature of 20 degrees Celsius to boiling at 100 degrees Celsius? And at the beginning of this, we mentioned that there are about four joules in a calorie. And a calorie is the measurement of energy that raises one milliliter or one gram of water by one degree Celsius. So the first next step, the first next step, the next step, a, a step we can take is to turn to, to to translate our joules into calories because that's how we're gonna, we're going to directly use calories to increase the the temperature of our water. Mm-hmm. And so we take our five times ten to the fourteen, and we divide that number by four, and we get one point two five times ten to the fourteen. Still, we've only changed the the coefficient in in our number, hmm. so we have. 1.25 times 10 to the 14 calories. And continuing on, we know that a liter of water has a thousand milliliters. And so the first thing we can do is convert those calories, which raise a milliliter of water by one degree into how many liters of water we can raise by one degree mm. by dividing our number by a thousand, which also be dividing by 10 to the three or subtracting three from the exponent. And so when we do that, we take our 1.25 times 10 to the 14, and we simply turn it into 1.25 times 10 to the 11. Yeah. And that's the answer. Pow. No, that's not the answer. What? That's some liters. That's, that's the number of liters of water we can raise by one degree. Oh, no. There's another division. Wow, you're totally right. What's the final step, then? Okay, so now you take that number, which is... Yeah, the number of liters you can raise by one degree, but we want to raise these liters by 80 degrees. So we have to divide by 80. Uh, wow, 1.25. I don't really want to do that, but I guess that's fine. Um, so, oh, no, that, I guess that works. Yeah, I'm going to pretend that's 1.2 because it's easier. And then 1.2 divided by 8. Uh, that doesn't sound very good, but how about this? We're going to go... Uh, 1.2 times 10 to the 11 is now going to become 12 times 10 to the 10. And we'll divide that by 10 again because of the 10 and the 80. And now it's 12 times 10 to the 9. And then 12 divided by 8 is 1.5. So it should be 1.5 times 10 to the 9 liters would be... Sorry, wow, this is complicated to say. Okay, 1 teaspoon of water turned directly into energy could boil from room temperature 1.5 times 10 to the 9 liters of water, which is also 1.5 billion liters of water. Gigaliters? No. What? No. (laughs) The answer is 1.5 gigaliters of water? No. Oh, that's so silly. Gigaliters? Yeah. People, I mean, when you hear these things, 
when you encounter them in real life, they don't seem that weird. Um, they might, maybe to you they do, but like they are commonly used words. For example, in computing, there's megabytes and gigabytes and megahertz and gigahertz, which are also used in like phones, like in like remote controls and cordless phones and cell phones. Like those are all operating in the megahertz or gigahertz scales. Um, if you tune, tune a car radio, like FM goes from 89 to 108 and that's in megahertz. Mm, yeah. So like people use the giga and mega prefixes pretty often, but they don't usually do it when talking about liters because a billion liters is a lot of something. Yeah, I was like, wow, I bet this is going to be some kind of crazy amount. And I looked up the number of liters in the Pacific Ocean. Is it way, way more? It's way more. <laughs> I oh thought it might God. be. It's in the quintillions. Yeah. Like 10 to the, is that the 18? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Because trillion is 12 and quadrillion is 15. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> so our number squared if you squared the teaspoon of water first then you could do it yeah which doesn't make any sense as a concept <laughs> <laughs> not for us three-dimensional beings yeah <laughs> okay the water volume of lake erie is 480 kilometers cubed <laughs> was useful <laughs> i can tell i can tell that was useful i could just feel feel the use of that <laughs> wow even that's it's just nowhere near it's not even that much water billions whatever yeah billions of liters yeah it's not that much i bet i bet it's like pretty close to like the amount of coca-cola consumed in a month or something what? <laughs> <laughs> that was your idea of not that much? Or like coffee? Those are probably pretty, those are probably pretty similar. <laughs> amount of coffee consumed Yeah, it's month. not that big. It's probably like the amount of this that's consumed every month by the human population. <laughs> well, I don't know. Like if it, if it was coffee, for example, you could say that you could make the hot water for all the world's coffee for a month. If you were able to convert the atomic energy of one teaspoon of water to energy. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I'm still trying to do this out in my head. It's hard. Squaring okay. kilometers mm -hmm. or whatever. Cubing kilometers. Um, yeah. All right, let's talk about more stuff now. So, <laughs> <laughs> another way. Yeah, okay, I'm ready, sir. <laughs> Another way that, that Fermi estimation can be used is what we've done so far is sort of like thinking of some quantity that we want to know the answer to, and then like starting from constants that are known and then trying to multiply them together and get there. But another useful thing you can do with this sort of estimation is to check your work or check someone else's work. Mm. If they're like, it's going to take this many of this thing to accomplish this task. You could use this estimation. You could either do it in sort of the generative way that we have been doing it, or you could do it from like taking, like dividing whatever they've done out until you get back to the original uh, number or whatever, or like the quoted number they're giving or something like that. I think it's important to note, and I, I kind of mentioned it earlier, but I do want to reiterate that 
this is a method that is very accessible. And some of the things that we're doing probably sound kind of crazy. It's like, I don't just know calories to joules off the top of my head. Like, what? But a lot of what's actually happening is we're constructing some kind of equation that's like, well, we have this unit and we want this one. And like, what do we know about what's in between and how do we get there? And it, I think it's really nice to note that we could, I mean, some of those we actually just knew the numbers, um, which isn't quite as fun or is like a different kind of fun. But in the example I mentioned earlier, like my professor and his son talking about the volume of a mountain, right? You're just guessing. Like, you're just like, sure. I don't know. I'm eyeing the, the height of that mountain. Like, what? it's probably wrong. And then, like, I'm probably going to be wrong about the radius of the base of it. And, like, but then you can go back and you can plug those numbers in if you have them. And you can get more precise answers. And you can, like, slowly improve your capacity to estimate those things, especially eyeing distances and, and heights and things like that. Um, so I just think it's, like, a really valuable practice. And, you, you know, you will get better at it as if, if you keep practicing it. And it can really help you uh, learn things about the world. And it's certainly useful to learn things about the worlds, and it can also just be a like a hobby. Mm. Like when you're doing something like going on a long car ride or, or something like that, you can just see something in the world in front of you, and then decide, like, try to figure out what it is, how it's working. And like you were just saying, it doesn't matter whether or not you get it right. If it piques your interest so much that you want to find out later, you can then go and find out and be like, oh. I was off by an order of a thousand on this part and so on and so forth. Yeah, which is just so different than like the school idea of being right about a thing. Just make sure you understand the work you did and then like it literally doesn't matter what numbers you use. <laughs> you could actually just use letters, but people hate the word algebra, so we recommend Fermi estimation. Speaking of which, I want to say some more things about the namesake of this topic, Enrico Fermi. Um, you want me to hit you now? <laughs> I can't. Yeah. I can't this time. Yeah. You, sometimes we're doing this in person, but now we're doing this in two different states. But maybe next time. Yeah. Um, I was reading about some of uh, what's been written about Enrico Fermi. I'm reading from Wikipedia now about his legacy. And it says, Fermi was known as an inspiring teacher and was noted for his attention to detail, simplicity, and careful preparation of his lectures. A biographer named Victor Weisskopf noted how Fermi, quote, always managed to find the simplest and most direct approach with the minimum complication and sophistication. He disliked complicated theories, and while he had a great mathematical ability, he would never use it when the job could be done much more simply. He was famous for getting quick and accurate answers to the problems that would stump other people. Later on, his method of getting approximate and quick answers through back-of-the-envelope calculations became informally known as the Fermi method, which is widely taught. So Fermi was born in Rome in 1901. That's where he studied and did most of his all his PhD work and so on. Anyways, reading from Wikipedia, Fermi left Italy in 1938 to escape new Italian racial laws that affected his Jewish wife, Lara. He emigrated to the United States, where he worked on the Manhattan Project during World War II, and he led the team that designed and built the Chicago Pile 1, which went critical on December 2, 1942, demonstrating the first human-created self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction. And then he went on to work in sort of all of those um, like large government projects, which 
led to the creation of the first atomic bomb in the U.S. I also really enjoy, again, from the Wikipedia article, this bit about his early life. It says that at a local market, he found a physics book, the 900-page Elementorum Physicae Mathematicae, written in Latin. And uh, and he just like started reading it. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> okay, I got nothing more to say about this. <laughs> Pow. <laughs> Copperboard clap. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's the end. We will put the calculations that we attempted in the show notes on our website at recordingtonetbroadcast.com where we can check for ourselves and you can also check whether or not we got anything right. Also on our website, you can find um, our contact information and the other episodes of our show. We also have an email address, which is recordedinternetbroadcast at gmail.com where you can send us fan mail and questions. Okay. Okay, thanks. thanks bye. bye. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to read about this guy. Yeah. I didn't say I didn't make any political statements that I said I was going to make. Oh, which ones were you thinking about? I was going to say that you can, like, you can observe, like, which countries are treating people poorly by watching where scientists emigrate from. Mm, yeah. Which I guess I just said. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading some, like, op-ed article about that in 2016, mm. and it was like, if you're a scientist, come to our country and leave your country. But I do wonder if that's ever been measured in a systematic way, like the immigration patterns of scientists, because they're people who both have the means to move around mm. and like, hopefully are thinking deeply enough to want to like be like, this sucks, I'm leaving.